A number of years ago, the pastor at my home church in Greensboro told a story from his childhood. I don't know why, but it really stuck in my mind. Chris said that when he was very little and the family would go out in the car, his mother would say, now Chris, this car won't start until you have your seatbelt buckled. I imagine that he was a well-behaved kid and immediately with no argument buckled up. But as he told this story, he said that in his little kid brain, when he heard this car won't start until you're buckled, he thought that meant the car literally would not turn over, that it mechanically could not go forward without the seatbelts being fastened. It was one of those childhood beliefs that just lingers in the background, and you never really address it directly because there's no need. Then he said that when he was a little older, when he was a teenager, he was riding in a friend's car with one of their parents, and she didn't buckle up, and he was shocked when the car moved. He protested, well, that's impossible. I thought the car couldn't start. And he trailed off in embarrassment while his friend and his mother laughed about laughed him out of the car. Sometimes we think that we understand things, and we do, but we don't. In Chris's case, what his mother said was true. She would not start that car without the belts buckled, and so it wasn't going to happen. What Chris understood was true. He needed to buckle up in order to get anywhere. As a child, he got the message that he needed. Safety is important, and it is not negotiable, especially with parents. But as he grew up, he gained a greater understanding, a deeper understanding about the role of choice in being safe. In some ways, this kind of mirrors our understanding of the Trinity. You know, today is Trinity Sunday. We can repeat by rote what the doctrine is. God is one, and God is three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what do we do with it then? To be sure, it is one of the aspects of faith that can be most confounding to non-Christians. For atheists and agnostics, it probably seems logically and mathematically unsound. Three does not equal one. That's why we have different numbers for three and one. Obvious. For other monotheists, for Jews and Muslims and Sikhs, it must seem like an impossible contradiction. God's oneness is absolute and sacrosanct. And after all, we affirm with Jews the text that Royce read this morning from Deuteronomy, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. That second part could mean either the Lord is one or the Lord alone. Either way, that's pretty straightforward as Bible verses go. And I imagine for polytheists, like many Hindus, our attachment to monotheism would be confusing. Why not just give it up and say you're a a polytheist, then you'd have done with it. We don't do that. (laughs) Indeed, Christians, past and present, have struggled to say intelligent things about the Trinity pretty much as long as we've had a doctrine of the Trinity. Some abandoned it and became Unitarians, focusing solely on the divinity of God, the Creator. Others could not deny the divinity of Jesus, and they became, and this is a real term, binitarians. Like, we're Trinitarians, they're binitarians, like bicycle two wheels. I thought it'd be fun to say. I like it. (laughs) But even in our own camp, there are those who believe in a Trinitarian God, but sort of secretly or publicly, they hold a preference for one person over the others. 
Puritans in New England, for example, now this is going back a ways, but they carried a pretty heavy focus on predestination and God the Creator, God the Father's eternal plan before creation. For them, that providence involved in our history through covenants of works and grace and redemption overshadowed everything else. One historian even wrote that in their theology, Jesus was almost an afterthought, only significant as he served that almighty power, purpose, and wisdom of the Father. I don't know about you, but I find that shocking because that's not where we are at all. (laughs) Then starting in the 19th century revivals, Jesus kind of overtook God the Father as the central person of the Trinity in many people's minds and faith in our country. All of creation and the fullness of time radiated from Jesus' entry into the world and work in the world. Then, of course, in the early 20th century, Pentecostalism got very big. And for them, the center of all life and worship was the Spirit. The, The Trinity was most defined by the Spirit coming into the world and coming into our lives. And so... You might think, where do we go from here? But our our theology and our confessions tell us over and over again, each person of the Trinity is equal, equally divine, equally to be worshipped, and that the same will of God works in all three persons. And so what we believe is that the Trinity is not and cannot be divided. The parts of the Trinity aren't at cross purposes, and we get pulled off course because the car won't start. We say God the Father is God the Creator. Sometimes we use that interchangeably as a title for the first person of the Trinity. But we're told in various places in the Bible that all of the Trinity was part of the work of creation. We say Jesus is our Redeemer, but God the Father is regularly called the Redeemer in the Old Testament, in the Psalms. We know the Spirit as our Comforter and our Advocate, but couldn't we say the same as Christ? or of the Father. It feels quite strange, though, to say what a friend we have in the Spirit, or what a friend we have in the Father, because we often decide that Jesus is different than the rest of the Trinity. And apart from Pentecost and a few other Sundays, sometimes we don't really bring up the Spirit that much at all. We kind of give the Spirit short shrift sometimes. Well, our reading from Acts comes right after the birth of the church, not so far after our Pentecost text from last week. The gift of the Holy Spirit came to people, to people from many nations. And Peter was fired up in the Spirit, and he was preaching to crowds all over the city, and they became convicted and ready to convert and be baptized. The Holy Spirit came, and Peter and the apostles preached, and they worked wonders and signs. They took that joy of the wisdom of the Spirit, and they shared it with everyone they could find, spreading gladness and generosity and goodwill. That's where we need the Spirit, because it's one thing to feel God's hand working in our lives, to find that peace through prayer, to see God's purpose worked out in the world, to grow into the disciple that Jesus calls us to be. It's quite another thing to be able to speak about that God, to take that indescribable closeness and blinding glory that emanates from heaven and to find words that can be helpful so that that reality can become real for someone else. 
Is it any wonder that that task gives us pause? There's a quote that's printed in the bulletin. I'd like to read it out to you now. It's long, so I thought it'd help you to be able to eyeball it instead of just listening to it. It was written by Gregory of Nazianzus, who was a great theologian, one of a group called the Cappadocian Fathers, and their writing and work was very formative for the early church. When writing about the Trinity, he said, No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish the three than I am carried back into the one. When I think of any of the three, I think of him as a whole, and my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what I am thinking escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. On one level, this is so beautiful and and so profound, it feels true to me and relatable. But on another level, it seems to be saying so much and so little at the same time. The more we understand, the less we understand. And it is the mystery of our God of many names, and it is, in a very literal sense, stunning. Our passage from Paul in Corinthians seems to pick up this thread of knowing and unknowing, of faith transcending our human limits. Immediately before the passage that we read this morning, Paul says that when he first came to Corinth and preached the word, he didn't focus as much on the mystery of God. He didn't use lofty words or wisdom. He wanted them to know Christ crucified and to believe in the power of God. That was to be the foundation of their faith. But now, now he says he can speak wisdom to the mature in faith. We must go deeper because the car will move. God's purpose for those who are faithful is beyond what we can see or hear, beyond what our hearts can even conceive. And the Spirit works to reveal the abundance of all possibility to all humanity. Here, the Spirit is revealed as the person of God who is not just moving and breathing and setting our hearts aflame. The Spirit is also the one that searches. The Spirit searches out the very depths of God, and the Spirit searches out all that is within each of us. It is the Spirit who teaches us things that we can't quite fully know. It is the Spirit who reveals this impossible wisdom. It is the Spirit and the Father and the Son working together without competition, without disagreement, without disruption. Meditating on the doctrine of the Trinity is for us a lifelong task. And our models for understanding the Trinity are static and they're limited. Now, I don't know if you noticed the window, the picture on the bulletin cover with the rabbits. That's uh, good for spring slash summer. Get some bunnies in there. Um, This window is actually a visual representation of the Trinity. If you look really closely, they are three hairs for three persons of the Trinity, but you see they share ears because of the oneness of God. That shows that they are connected 
Bet you never guessed bunnies had a medieval popularity for that purpose. Other times, when we talk about the Trinity, we talk about it being like properties of water. I'm sure you've heard this at various points in your life. Water can be liquid or ice or steam, but it's the same material, like, sort of, like God. Another favorite is God as a rose bush, that the Father is the bush and the Son is the rose and the sweet odor is the Spirit. These analogies go some of the way, but they do not and cannot contain the fullness of God. And so I would like to offer you one more analogy to chew on, knowing, of course, its limitations. This one includes us in our understanding of the Trinity. In this one, we could see God as a pregnant woman. We and all creation are the child. Jesus is the placenta, and the Spirit is the nourishment. In God's good will, we are all intimately connected. All of God works together for our living, for our growth, and for our sustenance. And we are held safe and we are loved, even if it seems dark and uncertain where we are. Our God of many names, our God of many persons, asks only that we love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our souls, and with all our strength and that we love and serve our neighbors. And so let us joyfully embrace the wisdom that resists easy naming. Let us bask in the warmth of the love and the perfection of the Trinity, even as we share it imperfectly. Amen.